1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to be speaking today with Dr. John Delury about his book titled Agents of Subversion, The Fate of John T. Downey and the CIA's Covert War in China from Cornell University Press in 2022. Um, This is a book that does a whole bunch of things at once and hopefully we'll get into them. Um, It does obviously focus a lot on this person of John T. Downey and um, how he ended up being a CIA. Agent that was captured and imprisoned by China um, in essentially the early and mid Cold War, but it also tells the story of um, U.S.-China relations in this really key um, part of history around the Korean War and um, before and after, and it does a lot to kind of help us understand where all of these different individual threads mix with the geopolitical, mix with the IR theoretical, um, and bring all of this together to help us understand this kind of hidden bit of american foreign policy so john i'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast
0: thank you so much miranda for having me i'm really looking forward to the conversation
1: could you maybe start our conversation off with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book
0: yeah sure so um i originally hail from sacramento california and can fast forward through the uneventful childhood years fairly quickly uh, to get to the point when I headed off to college. um, And that's a little bit relevant to the book uh, in that I went from my undergraduate years to, I went back East, as we say, to Yale. I was already a little bit curious about uh, China, although I didn't even know really that it was China. I had somehow stumbled on Taoist philosophy in high school. And so that was calling to me. But as an undergrad at Yale, I started to take some of the the wonderful offerings of Chinese history. And uh, then also got a chance, um, would have been 1994, to spend a summer in China, which was a bit unusual. It became a normal thing for for Yaleys to do, but back then it was a little unusual. And uh, that really uh, deepened my interest considerably. Um, so after I finished um, undergrad, I decided to go back uh, to Yale. Fortunately, they let me into the PhD program. And uh, at that point, I was really focused on uh, Chinese history, and I would say, you know, I had a kind of sinology approach to um, the PhD years. As an undergrad, I was I was still wandering around all stuff, but when I came back, I was very focused on. On China. So it took me a while, it took me about eight years to do the PhD. A lot of that time, probably about half of the time, was spent um, in China. You know, it took a full year just to work on the language, including classical Chinese, um, spent some time in Taiwan studying there. And uh, back then, I was into the 17th century and intellectual history and did my dissertation on that. Um, after I finished, I sort of jumped ship to a couple of years outside of academia. I worked at a center on U.S.-China relations, which was a nice break uh, at a place called the Asia Society in New York, started to get my interest going in on that side of things a little more contemporary and the U.S.-China dynamic, and um, then also plunged into a, a book project together with um, my, my boss, and then I left, and we were just plain old co-authors, the wonderful Orville Shell, And so we spent a couple of years working on a book called Wealth and Power, uh, China's Long March to the 21st Century, which is sort of a general political and intellectual history of China from just before the Opium War uh, right up to Xi Jinping that came out as, as she was taking power about 10 years ago. And um, yeah, by then I was located here. I'm talking to you from Seoul, South Korea, 2010, um, moved over here uh, to Yonsei University where I've been teaching and uh, with my wife who's originally from Seoul and raising three kids. So. Um, that brings us pretty much up to now. I sometimes people think there might be two John DeLurys because I have a sort of sideline trade in studying, you know, the Koreas. Um, not so much historically, more uh, current stuff. And um, I've made a few trips to North Korea, and especially I'm curious about the North Korea-China relationship, but also sort of observe what South Korea is up to and and kind of looking at the two Koreas caught in between, as it were, the United States and China. Uh, But uh, my main work, both in terms of my teaching and certainly my academic research um, for the last eight years, has been this book that we're going to be talking about, uh, Agents of Subversion, which, as you introduced, is very much a sort of U.S.-China early Cold War history. So that's where my head has been since I started in 2014.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you for um, kind of explaining that background. And it's always really helpful to understand sort of the journey that someone goes to, to come to a book. Um, they obviously don't end up, they don't start off as the finished products. Um, and it's helpful to kind of see the different strands. And, you know, having read the book, listening to that, I'm like, hmm, not surprised you're interested in North Korea, because that features a lot in the book. <laughs> it does. Um, it makes it cameo. a cameo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, there's a bunch of other kind of, you know, earlier Chinese history. Yeah, that gets in here. So um, I think we will sort of dive into the book now. Um, and I guess of the many starting points I could use, uh, I'm going to go with the title, right, which mentions the fate of John T. Downey. So who was he? And what sort of role does he play in the book?
0: Yeah, that's a that's an, a logical place to start. And um Although it's a curious answer, you having read it, you'll appreciate this, but it's a good way to kind of warn the reader a little about the journey that they'll be getting into if they uh, so choose to read the book. So um, John Downey, uh, John Thomas Downey or Jack, as he was called um, by his friends, is, you know, he's almost like a Connecticut Yankee. He's uh, he's from Connecticut, Irish American, Catholic family, uh, smart, athletic Uh, and, uh, comes from by all accounts. I mean, I didn't get deep into his, um, you know, his life story, but by all accounts, in terms of what I saw, just a, a good kid, you know, a good kind of all American kid. And, um, he he went to Choate, uh, the the right kind of school, and then he gets into Yale and uh, English major, does well at Yale and a star athlete. I would say he's on the football team and the wrestling team. He's in the class of 1951. Uh, so that's you know that's him in a nutshell. But then his life sort of. Uh, almost freezes, as it were, because upon graduation, well, he's recruited by the CIA What uh, in probably his senior year, and he joins uh, right away upon graduation. And then he sent out, of course, it's 1951. It's the height of the Korean War. So he sent out where he's needed, which is to start working on an operation um, out in, uh, in East Asia, you could say. And uh, fast forwarding a little, we can circle back to this, but that operation ultimately lands him in a prison cell in Beijing uh, by late 1952. So, you know, barely a year and a half after graduating college, he suddenly finds himself in prison in China and he spends over 20 years uh, in prison. Now, strangely, again, warning the reader here, you don't learn too much more about uh, John Downey than that in terms of his you know uh personal uh, life or his biography uh, because really what interested me is well it's hidden in the subtitle it's the fate of john t downey it's not the life of john t downey you know or the man or the thinking of john t downey fascinating as the subjects are what i wanted to do in this book and what the book does is it uses downey as a kind of arc to explore the the backstory. i mean particularly i'm i got very interested in yale as a kind of microcosm of post or early cold War uh, America, and uh, there's a you know he he allows us to kind of enter the CIA and there's quite a bit of history there on the origins of the CIA and then he brings us over to the Korean War and there's sort of a chapter on that and then there's the covert action he's involved in uh, as well as the two decades of imprisonment and all the diplomacy around that. Um, but the point is, it's not really uh, about him. I describe him as kind of a, a cipher, you know. And so we, um, in in uh, decrypting him, we get the larger story of U.S.-China relations, really spanning from 1945 or maybe 47, uh, when he starts college at, at Yale when the CIA is founded, as the Chinese Civil War is moving, you know toward its uh, denouement, uh, until 1973, when he's released in the wake of all the, the flurry of diplomacy between Nixon, Kissinger and, and Mao and Joe. So Downey is the vessel that tells that story. But the he will disappear, you know, for hundreds of pages. I remember worrying when I submitted a draft to my editor, thinking, "Is it going to be okay?" You know, that Downey's gone for like 150 pages. And fortunately, <laughs> I had very, very understanding <laughs> editors who who kind of got the concept of what I was trying to do, and we figured out a way to um, you prepare the reader. Uh, but. Um, but that, in a nutshell, to answer your question, is John T. Downey at least, at least insofar as the book, you know, is interested oh. in him.
1: I think uh, whatever preparation you did for the reader, uh, it worked. It made sense to me, at least. Um, but I think it is really interesting, uh, both because of kind of this one person does give us so many entry points. Um, But also, I think there's a lot of people listening to this who have written books or might think about writing books. Um, And so purely from a kind of construction point of view, it's also really interesting kind of how you've done that. So thank you for sort of explaining a bit of how you thought about it, Um, because it isn't necessarily the most obvious method. Uh, This is not a biography. And in a lot of ways, I think that's a strength. Um, But I do kind of want to go in through one of those entry points now, which is obviously the Yale entry point. Um, This is obviously an important part of um, Downey's story. It's an important part of the overall story. Um, And yeah, let's admit the bias. Uh, You and I both went there for undergrad and in your case further on. So we have perhaps slightly more interest than others might in it. Um, But I was fascinated to think about, as you've done, this idea of the, quote, loss of China, that the uh, success of the Chinese Communist Party in 1949 means that somehow the U.S. has lost China Um, and that this was a seemingly a problem in the United States. There were all sorts of debates about it, all sorts of things, Um, and that this impact in some ways you describe in the book was particularly felt through the microcosm of Yale. So I was wondering if you could kind of both take us through that a little bit and maybe explain for us sort of Why was this, quote, loss of China such a big deal? Why was it such a big deal at Yale? What did this look like?
0: Yeah, well, it's an incredible phrase, isn't it? Uh, Loss of China and, and used at the time. So this would be in the wake of Mao Zedong and the communist victory, you know, by late 1949. I mean, even earlier, Americans knew the writing was on the wall, but it's official as of October 49 when Mao established the the People's Republic of China, Communist China, and Americans at the time, not just foreign policy elite types, but there was a broader public sense of almost traumatic loss. Um, and of course, that implies that China was somehow America's to lose, somehow theirs, which is, it seems now like a pretty odd um, emotion for the public to have had. I think to understand that, we do have to backtrack a little bit, you know, and I probably could have done more of this in the book, but the reason that that could be understood as a loss has its roots in um, in and actually Yale served well, as you say, as a microcosm to explore this. Um, the the sense of loss presupposes that China was America's, and that notion of China belonging somehow to the United States, I think, has its deepest roots in the whole missionary history, you know, and kind of the the missionary complex, really, that Americans feel strongly in the 19th century. And of course, you know, to those who are involved in it, in a in their minds, very benevolent way of spreading the gospels and doing humanitarian work or or serving, and, and many of the individual biographies are are quite, um, you could say, heroic if you if you come from from that view. Um, but uh, but there you have it. I mean, there's this long history. Uh, of which Yale is very much a part, you know, so the missionary impulse is strong at Yale and the notion of the China mission, you know, that um, Yale faculty make trips to China as part of that and Yale students um, start establishing, you know, outposts uh, in in China. And so there's this, this deeper 19th century, this kind of tale of missionary work that connects um, Yale, as a as a organization, as a university, on its Christian side, uh, with China, and, and and Yale is is a more intensive um, point of what is a broader sense in a cross section of American society, and certainly you could say, I guess, like Christian America, that that American Christians have some special. Um, role to play. Uh, Gordon Chang has written just wonderfully about this um, in in his book. So I learned a lot from him. Um, this this kind of special destiny, you know, to help realize Christianity uh, in China. So I think there's a strong that sense of loss. It's almost Milton, you know, uh, Paradise Lost, because it really weighs in at that level. The 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 idea to many Americans that. China has gone over to the heathen communists, you know, because remember how the, especially in the early Cold War, the Cold War language about communism was about secularism and and being unchristian, so that's one heavy layer of the of the loss. The other one that you can see through these Yale missionary ties, and then the other one where there's there's also a bit of Yale is the more recent layer of the wartime alliance. You know, and this is now moving from the the kind of religious to the geopolitical, where um, right after Pearl Harbor. Uh, Chiang Kai shek comes immediately to Franklin Roosevelt and says, you know, sign us up. Or let's form the, the Sino American alliance. And so you have this um, intensive, I mean, under the surface, it's heavily contested and there's huge frustration on both sides. But you do have this powerful, especially at a public level, this powerful wartime alliance between the United States and China. And this is pumping, you know, propaganda to Americans who are now getting a second layer of feeling of a special relationship with China and and you know China holding down fighting the the, the Japanese um, from the East and Americans fighting from the west of the Pacific and together will uh, will vanquish fascism you know and and win the war and so if you put yourself back in time uh, in 1945-46 coming out of all of that propaganda work basically, Within a couple years, suddenly this country has gone red. You know, has gone communist. It's it's a sort of devastating blow. Um, Where you see that using the Yale microcosm, um, where I found this this wonderful figure, I became quite intrigued by him. uh, Is a faculty member named David Nelson Rao. This was not a name I knew beforehand, and if you survey uh, China scholars today, you know historians or political scientists, I don't think many of them know his name anymore. But he was a big guy. You know, he was the Yale China political science guy. If you were there in the uh, in the post war, post World War II period, and actually through the fifties and into the sixties, and so you know, Rao like that generation. Uh, he served in World War II. Of course, he was in OSS, as a lot of professor types were in the intelligence arm. And um, uh, he served in, in China. And it strengthened his notion of, again, almost this special mission that the United States had to uh, protect, take care of China and protect it from communism. So Rao actually emerges as one of the leading um you could say conservative or or more right on the right wing of the spectrum in the United States, who is devastated by the loss of China and determined to get it back. So he becomes a, a big backer of Chiang Kai-shek and um, part of, of what's called the China lobby, uh, where you have public figures. And then, of course, you have political figures, you have senators who are working throughout the the 1950s and on and beyond that uh, to support Chang our man Chang, you know, and to support Taiwan. So Rao was another, um, you know, again using the kind of microcosm of of Yale is a figure who I recovered from the lost mists of time. You know, he's obscure now, uh, but was quite interesting to see how that's playing out on campus. And then, you know, he's teaching. Young Yalies, um about uh, about how they should understand China and the politics of China, and he's giving. Pretty much kind of the right-wing version of it um, for, for many of the students who come through his class. The last thing I would add is one of those students, not that he's a protege of Rao in particular, but one of the more interesting students who's around, uh, graduated, I think, a year before uh, Downey is William F. Buckley Jr., you know, who, who Many of our listeners will immediately know his his name as uh, such an important force in American conservatism. Um, so, you know Buckley is there and really gets his start. He writes that book, um, "Got a Man at Yale," as basically a senior, and that's what launches him onto the national stage. But you also see in Buckley he picks up on the loss of China issue because that is actually the um, the, the on the front burner of McCarthyism, you know, and Buckley is a card-carrying McCarthyite. He writes a, kind of his second book is a defense of, of McCarthy as a great American hero. So you also see Buckley on campus representing even a little ahead of McCarthy's own emergence. Buckley is articulating that sort of pretty rabid, anti-communist, uh, conservative American view and and start and linking it with China as the weakness of liberalism you know it's the liberals who lost us China and of course McCarthy uh, Buckley follows him a little McCarthy goes much further in igniting a a second Red Scare, where it's not only the weakness of liberalism, it's the it's the traitorous nature of all these uh, subversives, you know, on campuses and in the State Department that are actually to blame for the loss of China. So um, you can see how that prism of the campus culture and some of the figures, both on and there are more in the book, on faculty and among the student body, work pretty well to open up you know, that whole can of worms of, of the ferment of the McCarthyite moment for the United States. And and my focus is on how it's linked to the China question, and the links are are quite strong.
1: Well, and I think it's a really interesting um, kind of, as you said, way to think about this, like, this weird phrase, right, the loss of China, um, and how it plays out not just in terms of like the really small group of China hands, um, but more broadly. Um, You know, I hadn't really thought of it as being related to McCarthyism, for example, Um, but there is a very clear link. um, And for listeners who uh, are interested in this particular bit of the book, I will point you to the book for definitely more depth um, on this particular topic and understandings of kind of what the debates were in Washington around this and how uh, some of these thinkers uh, play into it. Uh, So there definitely is more there, but... I'm going to kind of move us forward a little bit in time and in the book uh, to another one of the entry points, which is, of course, uh, the Korean War and the CIA. Um, I think there's probably going to be relative familiarity in our listeners of kind of what the CIA is um, and what they were doing in various places and why. Um So I was wondering if you could tell us kind of particularly around the Korean War. Uh, It was interesting to see in the sources and examples that you gave us in the book that the Korean War in particular, given how many different hotspots there were in 1950, um, that the Korean War was kind of a particular focus in some ways for the CIA, and especially for the idea of attempting covert and subversive sorts of actions. Um, Can you tell us about kind of this sort of what the CIA was doing in the Korean War and why there was so much focus on the secretive stuff? Yeah, well, I think that, you
0: know, this this was a lot of fun, I have to say. I mean, I I never, I don't think I ever set out to be an intelligence historian, but um I don't know why more people don't do it, or or maybe I do know, you know, it's difficult and it's a little bit perilous, right? As a historian when you're when you are studying people who are professionally trained in lying or in the arts of secrecy and and the whole question of your documentary base for things is so slippery, um, one has to do it with a lot of trepidation. And I was relying heavily on all kinds of great um, secondary oh, Source work, you know, on the history of, in particular, the early CIA, and as you said, you know, this is um, this is a topic that many are interested in. A lot of good work has been done, but in the China field, I would say we've kind of avoided it. And I felt like I was um, at least uh, breaking a little bit of new ground to bring such a focus um, again from the more sinological side in terms of Korea and what that does. Um, I mean, you have to remember, one thing is that the Americans really didn't pick that fight and were, were a bit blindsided. I mean, I write in the book about this series of intelligence failures on on all sides, you know, because the Korean War kind of unfolds in, in this series of major intelligence failures. And one of them is the invasion itself is not... Uh, too well foreseen. Uh, and then of course, the North Koreans and behind them, the, the Soviets and the Chinese are making a intelligence failure in thinking that the Americans will just kind of let it go. In fact, Truman goes all in and and sends MacArthur, uh, who, who achieves this next great intelligence coup, which is an intelligence failure for the North Koreans with the Incheon landing. It's September 1950. And then you have maybe the final gigantic intelligence failure, which is, and I looked a lot into this, it's a fascinating one, how not just the CIA, because there's a lot of intelligence actors, especially in these years. I mean, CIA has only started in 1947. It's still very much getting its feet. You know, so a lot, when you say intelligence, I mean, it's still complicated today. You know, we say the intelligence community to kind of fudge (laughs) the fact that there are 18 of these different agencies doing all kinds of different things. Um, But back then in a different, way. The CIA was kind of the new kid on the block. Uh, it was contributing to the intelligence assessments, but it wasn't necessarily driving all of them. But in any case, you have a, a collective intelligence failure on the American side to see that the Chinese were coming, you know, and that they were uh, uh, sneaking, you know, their, their soldiers in, in force across the border. And then, of course, you have this surprise attack that reverses the course of the war. So Korea is um, not a place that had been too high on the map, as you said, you know, there were so many hot spots that the Americans were worried about and much more worried about Europe than they were about Asia in general. But now, because of these series of events, the Americans thrust themselves into it. Um, I love George Kennan, you know, who gets a lot of attention in the book. Um, not too surprisingly, but but I got quite interested in, in him from various angles. But he has a great phrase, I think, in his memoirs, where he talks about the reaction to Korea like a stone thrown into a beehive, which is you know not a compliment to the ways in which suddenly everyone in Washington is running around. You know, OK, Korea, Korea, where's Korea? Literally, you know, on the map, where is Korea? And so the CIA gets... Um, pulled into this vortex. Uh, The CIA actually has its own internal conflict, I would say, about what's the right balance between two, there are at least you can say these two uh, core areas where it's supposed to contribute as an agency, you know, to the operations of government and to foreign policy. And, you know, those you can describe as one of the my chapters is called intelligence or Psywar, uh, using an expansive de- definition of, of Psywar, of psychological warfare to include covert action, you know, and even paramilitary types of operations. So the CIA is internally conflicted and um, the director, he takes over sort of right as the, as the Korean War erupts. Uh, not, not a well-known guy, Beatle Smith. He, he's not as well known as his successor, Alan Dulles,, you know, who is shown portrayed in, in Hitchcock movies and all this kind of stuff. But I found Beatle Smith a fascinating figure. Uh, you know, he's this hardened World War II, um, you know, kind of hero. Um, more the chief of staff type than the real towering hero of a of a marshal or of an Eisenhower, but everybody really respects uh, Beatlesmith. Smith. He's a tough guy. He's got a terrible temper. He's always going off on people, so everyone's a little bit of a fr- a bit afraid of him. The interesting thing about um, Smith is, you know, he doesn't like uh, the covert action. Stuff that he's being told to do, and that his agency is being told to do, and he does try in his way to push back against it. Um, that is to say, you know, the pressure coming from the White House, the State Department, and from uh, the Armed Services, who all kind of want the CIA to do more of this "quote unquote" monkey business. You know, the the covert ops type of stuff. And Smith says, "Look, this is not why we set this thing up. The primary mission." Of the CIA is intelligence. That means the analysis. You know, um, there's another great Yale figure, Sherman Kent, who is the, the the godfather. I mean, the builder of strategic intelligence, as it's called. Writes a book about that and leaves Yale uh, to do that work at at the CIA. And you can, you I could certainly feel in my readings of the of the record and the and the documents that. You know, Smith really saw that as what the CIA should be doing, but it keeps getting pulled into um, the paramilitary stuff, and that's where the Korean War is crucial, is essential, because you know you've got the military mobilization running across government, you've got the massive resources that are unleashed by fighting a war, although it's, of course, an undeclared war, but. There it is. It's a it's a war, and the war machine is going. And the role that the government as a whole uh, is looking to the CIA to perform is much more. Well, what can you do to cause them trouble? You know, so there's extent. I only get into it a little bit in the book, but there's extensive covert, you know, clandestine activity. Uh, that the CIA is doing in North Korea you know trying to infiltrate all types of people on missions into North Korea what I focus on is this kind of um, branch of of that effort which is uh, directed against China and actually occurring inside of the PRC's uh, borders and and we'll we'll come back to that because of course that's the main story of the book as it were um, but you know I would say that to your to your original question, the, what the Korean War does is it really militarizes the CIA as a whole. And that goes throughout, then you see that playing out through a, a good part of the 1950s. And again, under the the next director, Alan Dulles, he loves that stuff, you know, so you you have less of the internal tension within the agency of, of trying to say, hey, this is not what we're here for. Uh, under Alan Dulles's uh, leadership, you know, it's kind of all in on the, on the monkey business.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, I think that was one of the things I was most surprised by that um, such a senior person as Beadle, who I agree was fascinating, um, was just not super enthused particularly with the shenanigans, I suppose, um, and also kind of a useful reminder. And of course, this is something that is relatively well known, um, but a useful reminder, especially in this context, which, as you say, we don't always think about for early CIA, that they were in a lot of ways shenanigans. Um, <laughs> they were not necessarily things that we would consider today's standard of kind of well-planned and well-understood and having lots of information, um, there were a lot of kind of gaps in the knowledge um, and a lot of gaps, at least from my point of view, of kind of why did you think that would work? Um, But of course, you know, that's easy to say from this vantage point. So could we get into a bit more of the details, kind of what was what were these covert operations like? What were they trying to do? How were they trying to do it? And did they work?
0: Well, I'll focus on and and in the book, one thing I set out to do was to give the reader as much as possible a, a comprehensive picture, that's a strong word, but a, you know, a panorama as it were of all of the, you know, as the subtitle says, the covert war in China. Um You know, kind of, if you add it all up, what does it look like? And what you see in some cases, the CIA is directly involved. In other cases, it's more kind of a support. You know, the CIA is providing the the guns and the training, and then it's um, it's it's other recruited agents who are doing the actual um, monkey business to keep using that phrase. But um, if you think of, I'm focused obviously on on China as the target. Um, if you, as I mentioned, there's there's a lot of activity during the war directed against North Korea, which consists of all kinds of means, you know, plane, ship, uh, even just sending them walking north of infiltrating both Koreans and Chinese, including uh, from the POW camps. There's amazing work on this done um, by David Chang in his book, The Hijacked War, uh, which is a which is a phenomenally good read, um, but. So there's all sorts of stuff on the Korean Peninsula, right, of just, just trying to send people up north where they're supposed to cause trouble and uh, get intelligence and somehow come back with it or um, engage in uh, sabotage guerrilla operations in in North Korea. So that's kind of one area where, where during the Korean War, as you would more expect. Um, the CIA is involved in creating as much havoc and getting as much information as they can. But I'm really focused on the, the China-directed uh, stuff. And, you know, a lot of that is happening out of Taiwan or, um, you know, off of the, Taiwan holds on to, as it still does, um, some of them to this day, holds on to smaller offshore islands, which are ideal bases, you know, little platforms for clandestine operations to kind of, it's like pinpricks, you know, that just keep sort of pricking away or sometimes punching away um, at communist control over Fujian province, you know, Guangdong province. Um, So you've got a whole range of operations that essentially the the Taiwanese, I mean, but this is Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists, that they are engaged in. Much of which uh, they are receiving, you know, CIA direct or indirect support for. Um, so that's one. That's one kind of major sphere of activity, um, and that's using both planes. You know, the, the the nationalists are flying planes and dropping leaflets or dropping commandos from the air who are parachuting down um, into spots of, of Southeast China. And then there's a lot done at sea, obviously, and by boat of these little kind of infiltration operations. That's probably the largest volume of activity. There's also this strange offshoot of nationalist uh, uh, covert action, which, again, has CIA support, which is taking place way over in Burma. Um, There's a, uh, you know, kind of a a army um, that instead under... Chiang kai sheks command, loyal to Chiang Kai-shek, nationalist uh, troops, um, I, think, I think originally it's about 12,000, you know it's on that scale, who, instead of you know, marching um, and, and then getting across the Taiwan Strait to follow the Generalissimo and, and, and go to Taiwan, they instead march, end up southwest and go across the border from Yunnan Province into Burma. And then they set up sort of camp. In the wilds of Burma, uh, which is struggling to consolidate uh, sovereign control and has all kinds of ethnic conflict and basically just a weak state um, having been recently established. Uh, So, the nationalist, this nationalist group under a general Lee Mi, they set up in Burma, they sort of take advantage of the vacuum that exists there, and then will occasionally march across the border and stage uh, some kind of again pinprick. Military operation, uh, and then and then kind of run back to to safety, as it were, back across the border. That continues into the early 1960s. So you have, um, you know, these um, these nationalist army. Uh, operations. There are a couple others, but those would be kind of the, the two largest ones. You think of one directed against uh, Fujian, a little Guangdong province, and then another coming from the southwest against Yunnan province. Um, the one that the reader learns quite a bit about, uh, taking us to the central action now of, of the book and the specific role played by, by John Downey and his group, is something else. And it gets us into this this thing of the third force. Um, So the third force is a label that was given and used um, in Chinese as well. To those, there's intellectuals, there's generals, and then there's soldiers who most of them served in the the Nationalist Army, but they never liked Chiang Kai-shek. Or they never were happy with kind of the nationalist party and its leadership. They don't follow Chang to Taiwan, uh, but they're not communists, you know, and they are—they are not certainly not loyal to Mao. And they end up as a group mostly in Hong Kong, and um, make these fledgling efforts to both intellectually and politically kind of organize themselves uh, in Hong Kong, which is, of course, a British colony. That's where this quite unique CIA operation um, gets its start, which is in targeting third force elements in Hong Kong to recruit them, uh, fly them to Saipan, to the you know Pacific island of Saipan, where they go through uh, intensive paramilitary training And then, with kind of finishing up their training in Japan, then deploy them into Northeast China, into what we'd call Manchuria. So, that's this, uh, that's another one of the, another prong in this covert war is ultimately directed against the Northeast. But rather than using the nationalists, the CIA, who are directly involved in this, uh, they are. Trying to use these third force elements, neither nationalist nor communist.
1: So, in a lot of ways, um, I, I like the idea of kind of the pinpricks, because um, particularly imagining a map of China, you can see from what you've just described kind of the geographic spread of all of this. Um, and I do also. I'm kind of amused that at least one of these collections was called Operation Octopus, I believe. Based out yes, of Taiwan. yeah,
0: the names yeah. are too good to make up.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, very appropriate, given what you've described for us. Um, so I would like to kind of move into sort of the mission, I suppose, um, with all of its caveats of kind of level of importance. Um, tell us about what was John Downey doing in a plane and how did he get captured?
0: Right. So, um the the well to tell the story of his flight in I have to give a little bit of background on uh, this operation which went by a couple different code names but Merlin is one that you see in the CIA documents Operation Merlin um, and so this operation again is the one I've described of the the recruitment in Hong Kong training in Saipan but then when you get to the deployments um, and I did a lot of work and here's where I was able to use Chinese language sources and and find. Quite interesting, um, you know, uh, documents that allowed me to reconstruct what happens where uh, the programs kind of starts in '51 and then really gets going in terms of actually dropping these small teams. Again, the scale of this is is small. These are like four man teams, but they are, you know, flying. The CIA, I should say, is flying these unmarked planes. They belong to something called CAT, which was a proprietary airline that was going bankrupt and had been bailed out by the CIA on terms of allowing it to use it as a kind of cutout uh, airline when it needed it. So these, these unmarked uh, planes are flying um, the recruits, the Chinese recruits, third force recruits, flying them into... Northeast China, and they're they're dropping out with their parachutes, and then they're maintaining radio contact, wireless radio contact with headquarters uh, in Japan. And so you've got the initial drop, and then you've got the resupply flights. So there's fairly regular, uh, it's not quite monthly, but it's getting close to something um you know, when this operation is really humming, again, small scale of the actual numbers that are infiltrated, but the flights are going in, you can say almost on a monthly basis in like the second half of 1952. And, um, the And so Downey is one of, you know, he's a young guy, but he's he's a key figure in in the training of these guys and then uh, keeping the communications with them and basically running their operation. Now, what are they doing, right, uh, on the ground in Manchuria? Well, their, their mission is they're literally supposed to start the counter-revolution. I mean, this is where you get into the shenanigan part, you know, because how are these four guys recruited in Hong Kong they did try to at least recruit men who were originally from the area but how on earth you parachute them in great but what are they how are they supposed to foment a counter-revolutionary that a revolution that's going to overthrow mao i mean that's where you get into the kind of absurdity of the expectations on them but Instead, they just start trying to survive, you know, and uh, especially, and they they have to hide, you know. They have to kind of stay in wilderness or semi wilderness areas because they can't just slip in and blend in. So they're kind of hiding out. They wire back for uh, for more supplies to to keep themselves alive, basically. Especially as you get into the winter. Um, but the reason that Downey ends up on one of these missions from what I could see, he he actually joined one of the resupply flights in August of '52, um, and then in late in November, around this time of year, um, November uh, of 1952, um, a message comes. Well, earlier in the month, uh, a message comes. Um, from one of the liaison agents, right, who was sent to establish on-ground communications with these teams and see how they're doing and plan the next steps, uh, the liaison agent sends a message back, says, "Oh, it's going great. You know, you gotta, you gotta pick me up. You gotta send a plane to pick me up." Um, and so Downey. As well, along with someone whose name should certainly be mentioned, his, his fellow um, CIA officer and then prisoner uh, for almost 20 years, Dick Fecto, uh, a, again, a young man, recent college graduate. The two of them fly along with on one of these unmarked planes um, being piloted and co-piloted by these CAT employees. So you've got two CIA guys in the back and then you've got the two um, airline employees with this special arrangement, arrangement where they fly missions for the CIA, and these four Americans, you know, and it has to be said, white Americans, Caucasian Americans who are not Chinese speakers, um, they fly, they take off from Korea on a winter night, and they fly in, and they're supposed to pick up uh, Li Juning, the this uh, this liaison agent, and the whole thing. I mean, Miranda, we're giving away the book. This is the this is the fun plot part, but uh, the the whole thing is a setup, right? Um, the and and I use that this the the historical interest here and scholarly interest, and and using the Chinese sources and the PRC PRC sources, I really wanted to reconstruct and I think do a decent job of reconstructing how those teams had been had been identified and you see the building Ma- Mao's building up of his counterintelligence and public security apparatus even in these remote areas of Manchuria so this is kind of very early state building for the PRC um, but you see uh, or I reconstruct in the book how um, Mao's uh, Mao's public security agents were able to identify these teams and hunt them down and kill some but also, of course, the game is always to catch the spy alive and then see what you can get out of him. And they pull the ultimate counterintelligence coup, which is to catch um, the one of the radio operators alive, quickly turn him and say, look, you better cooperate with, with us or else. Uh, and so this radio operator sends seemingly positive messages that lure in uh, Downey and his compatriots for this for this flight. The whole thing is a setup. The plane is shot down. The pilot and co-pilot are killed in the crash, but Downey and Fecto emerge virtually unscathed. And now uh, the the PRC has you know two American these young Americans caught red-handed on this uh, this spy operation in their own territory.
1: And this is when the book sort of turns from um, intelligence history into more diplomatic history. Though, of course, the two remain very intertwined. Um, and yes, obviously, that tells us—you know—if this was a film, that would be like the moment. Yeah, that's of, a, all the, the movie part. Is you um, know chapter
0: chapter six. <laughs> yeah,
1: but, but actually, I think that's uh, it, you know, in in some ways, the kind of capture of it is in a lot of ways, the beginning of the next part, uh, because the drama does not end, clearly. Uh, if there, if this was a film, there would be plenty more to go with. Um, so I want to kind of turn to the sort of diplomatic stuff, because, of course, the goal is, as you said, capturing the spies, and that has lots of sort of operational benefits for the Chinese to figure out, like, where these planes are going and all that sort of stuff. Um, but there's some real high politics aspects to this as well. So kind of, can you tell us about that, those early stages of sort of China telling the US that this has happened? And kind of, this is, I think, where the hidden aspect of US foreign policy comes in. What were the reactions on the US side? How did this impact broader US-China relations, the capture of two CIA guys?
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, first of all, thank you, Miranda, for understanding the structure of the book. You know, and it's kind of you can think of it as gears. The first gear is a lot of actually intellectual history and some intelligence history, and then it shifts into the the, the cinematic covert action, and then we shift next into the diplomatic history, which um, which occupies a good chunk of the book. And I I was equally fascinated and learned so much myself in in doing the the research on that. So. To your question, you know, one of the curious things that happens is, well, it's not curious. The The Chinese don't say anything. And um, they, they just say nothing about the fact that they've caught these two spies. And the analysts back in Washington, they do know that the plane doesn't come back. But that's all they know. And they infer, and this is a, a, probably a textbook example of of groupthink and bad inference, you know, so maybe in intelligence schools they could use this. But um, pretty much so far as I could tell, there wasn't dissent. Everyone, as it were, agrees, well, if, if they had caught our guys, then they would, the term they use is they would make propaganda hay of it. I think there's even a document that says they wouldn't be able to resist. You know, so it's a real underestimation of your adversary uh, to, that, they, that, they, uh, that they make and, again, make a big intelligence error in thinking. And then they assume kind of a best-case scenario. Oh, the plane must have crashed somewhere, and uh, too bad everyone was killed, but that's kind of the end of the story. So that's November, you know, 52, and the CIA sort of internally and the other um, parts of the of the government that are somehow connected or involved with this, they they make a pretty crude cover story, you know, after the fact, they put something out about a plane crashing or disappearing, and then they kind of move on and they start to inform the families and uh, and start to pay out. You know, uh, it gets into complicated bureaucracy internally of sort of how the CIA deals with these men who are assumed to be to be dead, but they just basically all move on. Two years later, almost to the day, a full two years later, suddenly the Chinese government announces uh, we've had you know just completed this spy trial, and in addition to a crew that was known, a crew of Americans that were known to have being held, the Arnold crew, named after their their leader, Colonel John Arnold, a plane that had crashed during the Korean War. In addition to, to those um, nine Americans, the Chinese say, oh yeah, and there's these two other guys, Downey and Fecto. Uh Downey got a life sentence, and Fecto got a 20-year sentence. And this is The first the CIA has heard of the fact that they're alive. So that sets up a good, uh, you know, uh, 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 almost 15 years of a diplomacy of deceit in the sense that, you know, the reaction of the United States government, and I want to be clear here that in no part of the story really is the CIA kind of the rogue actor. I mean this is where it's very much not like a lot of the movies you know you actually see how the CIA is is doing what it's being told really by the the political masters and especially when you get to this part of okay, they've got our our guy uh, the CIA internally leans more toward how do we get them released? Whereas when you look at the role of someone like the very powerful Secretary of State, uh, uh, John Foster Dulles, brother of the CIA director, Alan Dulles, um, the immediate reaction is to grit our teeth and lie our way through this thing, including, of course, lying to our own public to deny that there's any truth to the Chinese version of the story. These are not CIA agents. You know, these were innocent uh, U.S. military, um, civilian, you know, uh, employees, civilian employees of the U.S. military who were involved in a Korean War related uh, mission and therefore should have been released back in 1953. That's sort of the political cover story. And as far as the diplomacy, what you find is. Uh, 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 quite an interesting study in contrast between the very rigid and intensely ideological sort of anti-communist uh, approach of Dulles, who just wants nothing to do with the Chinese, You know, just does not want to recognize them, does not want to talk to them. And so the, the whole um, operating principle of the diplomacy is how do we minimize our interaction with the with the red Chinese to the absolute minimum against Joe and who is the the lead diplomat um, working so closely under Mao and for Mao, but with the portfolio actually has a lot of the intelligence portfolio, and he, he certainly has the diplomatic portfolio. You know, and he's 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 as suave as Dulles is uh, is is sort of inflexible, and so you see Joe and lie really co- using. Um, the Downey infecto case in particular, and then a larger set of Americans who are, you could say, stuck. Some arrested, uh, others uh, just for for various complicated reasons, ended up sort of stuck in China. Joe and Lie using them as a card and playing them against many Chinese nationals who are stuck. Uh, some of them involuntarily having a hard time getting out of the United States again, for all sorts of complicated reasons. And so the diplomacy, the kind of diplomatic history of the United States and China, PRC China, in the 1950s, and it really kind of starts from uh, this moment where the spies are finally tried in, in 1954. Um, it's it, the one thing that will get U.S. officials and PRC officials to sit down together and meet in a room are these detained nationals or imprisoned nationals, you know? Uh, the one formal agreement between the U.S. and PRC comes, for example, the next year in September 1955, uh, so it is called Agreed Announcement, um, where basically the the announcement is that the two governments, you know, agree to certain principles for returning their nationals, you know, and you actually see them moving on that. And so... Um, these cases, Downey and Fecto, turn out to be the toughest case to resolve. Uh, and so the Chinese hold on to them the longest, and Downey in particular, they hold all the way until 1973. But there's a broader set, and I tell the the story and and look into a number of the other cases, because really the content of diplomatic interaction between the United States and the PRC. You know, through the Eisenhower years and into the Kennedy and, and Johnson years, it's very limited. But insofar as they sit down together, it's to it's to work on this issue of uh, detained citizens abroad. And and again, with with Downey and and Fecto as the hardest one to solve.
1: I think that was one of the sections of the book where the uh, kind of use of Downey as a sort of entryway or a guide, I suppose, through a bit of history um, kind of worked really effectively. because. You again, we don't necessarily think about kind of well, what were the few things that the US and the PRC were talking about? Um, and yet it's very clear from the evidence and sources that you were able to <laughs> put together and make sense of um that this, as you said, is kind of one of the very few continuous threads. Um and of course, Downey is sort of the end of it because he was, as you said, the one of the ones they hang hung on to um until the 70s and he was eventually released. So how do we get from the point of the life sentence and the kind of slowly releasing the others but not him to then him actually being released in uh, I believe it was 1973.
0: That's right. And so, you know, for those who know their their US China uh key point 73 of course the 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 turning point in US China relations starts with the Secret Visit uh, by Henry Kissinger in July in the summer of 1971 and Kissinger's talks with Joe and I, which are utterly fascinating. Um, and we have nice full transcripts of those that the, the secret talks become public and set up the very public almost hyper-public visit by Nixon to Beijing in February of 72. But you see, Downey's still there. You know, it, it's, it's extraordinary when you think of, here's President Nixon, you know, with all the media coverage and and Nixon was making such a big deal. And obviously it was such a big deal when he makes the breakthrough visit to Beijing uh, and and this turning point it, from hostile relations with China to what Kissinger will call a tacit alliance. Um, Downey's in a prison cell, like a stone's throw. He's in a downtown prison cell. He's not far from where his president is on, you know, a VIP tour of the Forbidden City. Um, so it, it shows how how much Downey kind of meant. Um, they did release Fecto as a goodwill gesture, you know. So. Um the, uh, the, the, the Chinese thought that Fecto was kind of, actually, they, they were wrong about this, but they thought Fecto was more junior to Downey, that Downey was the principal architect of the operation. So he got a life sentence and Downey got 20 years. And so as a goodwill gesture, I mean, they barely reduced his sentence, but they let Fecto out a bit early in December of 71 to improve the atmosphere for Nixon's visit. But they did not let uh, Downey out. I I will try not to give it all away cuz I really hope any reader who hears this and does go to to buy the book uh, I hope they can get to to the end because a lot of the threads that I've been weaving um are are tied together there and in particular Henry Kissinger emerged from my research as um a fascinating you know figure when seen from this lens of secrecy and the role that secrecy plays in uh, us foreign policy and in particular in the us china relationship going from a hostile covert relationship to a open friendly relationship that's kind of the transition here and kissinger is this very um complicated figure. Uh, But I have to say, in some ways, when you listen to those tapes and you listen to the conversations between um, Kissinger and Nixon in the Oval Office, you know, which as historians, we're so grateful to Kissinger for bugging himself and everyone else so that we can actually be there in the room. They're very user unfriendly, but when it works, and I had a couple incredible moments where it worked and I could actually hear them discussing the Downey case, um, there's something really, I have to say, quite dark about it. You know, the here's as a U.S. citizen uh, and as a historian, you you feel the um, the pathology of secrecy as a form of foreign policy and as a form of basically domestic policy, because that's, of course, what's happening under under Nixon. So, um, it, it I guess you could say there's a certain tragic uh resolution of the case it's 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 of course a very happy moment for downey and uh for his family Uh, i talk about quite a bit his mother in the book and and she's actually a key trigger for how he's ultimately released because she had made numerous visits that had built up goodwill even personal goodwill with joe and lai so uh when she became um uh, seriously ill, that was actually the, the trigger for Joe and Lai to order Downey released. Um, in a way, it's filial piety uh, and a mother's love that, that actually gets Downey out. But the, the, the bigger historical story is all of this very complicated um, and, again, obsessively secretive diplomacy that Kissinger and Nixon do to create a breakthrough, so there's a kind of tragic irony, I suppose, um, that in 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 practicing that um, art of secret diplomacy, they are able to uh, change the nature of a relationship in, in between the United States and China in a positive way. But then, of course, this brings us to March seventy three, and the kind of final irony uh, of the book, I suppose, is you know the the moment that Downey is out. Uh, he kind of gets a hero's welcome, but there's a much bigger news story uh, because mm-hmm. this is when Watergate really um, explodes. And and so it, it sort of sends the United States hurtling in that next direction.
1: I think that that was um, the kind of timing of those two things was a really great way to bring home that point that the secretive diplomacy happening across an ocean from the United States nevertheless is deeply intertwined with domestic American politics. Um, and quite simply, the idea that this you know CIA spy is released after so long, but actually a lot of the questions at the press conference are about, hang on, what's happening over at this apartment complex? Um, exactly. Was a really, you know, obviously didn't mean to have those things happen together but really makes that point um quite effectively so i think that's probably a decent point to end on bringing together a lot of those um threads which really leaves me with only my final and hopefully not my most difficult question for you to answer um which is that this book obviously has brought so many things together and has had so much um work to parse through these tapes and dig out these sources and um put all these threads together uh so besides obviously resting and restoring yourself after that project um might there be some sort of project on the horizon we could get a sneak peek about your next thing
0: well there is i don't know if this is uh uh, the answer people dread but i'm one of those um graduate students, you know, who threw myself into my dissertation and loved it. And then when I finished, just thought, oh my God, I need to get away from that thing. And so I sort of went running uh, away from the 17th century. And I'm finally feeling that it's calling me back. So the, um, the next project, and, and actually it's refreshing, you know, having spent all this time in the Cold War, uh, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm already kind of back in the, the transition from Ming to Qing Dynasty and uh, looking with new eyes, trying to see the forest for the trees. And I'll say the one idea that I didn't, that I, I realized I avoided thinking about when I was doing the the PhD work, but now am uh, embracing as a concept is the idea of of empire of what empire meant uh, in the transition from the Ming Empire to the Qing Empire. Uh, so, kind of, I'm going back to my roots in Chinese intellectual history. Essentially, is the answer.
1: Well, that will be fun. So so. enjoy that journey. And hopefully, when that becomes a book, uh, we'll have you back and you can tell us all about that one. Um, But in the meantime, yeah, exactly. But in the meantime, (laughs) while you are back in the uh, transition from the Ming to the Qing Dynasty, Uh, listeners can read the book we've been talking about, which again is called Agents of Subversion The Fate of John T. Downey and the CIA's Covert War in China, out from Cornell University Press this year, 2022. Um, John, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you, Miranda. I really enjoyed it. Enjoyed the thoughtful questions and conversation.